Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue, and we're coming to you from the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. If you grow up in a former British colony that has always known state-run media, what does that state-run media reflect? Dr. Sanjay Astana, a professor in the Department of Journalism and Strategic Media, has written a book titled India's State-Run Media, Broadcasting, Power, and Narrative, but it's more than just a journalistic analysis. Sociology, economics, religion, politics, and more all factor in. India's state-run media, after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. An in-kind donation of nearly $2.2 million by Petroleum Experts Limited, an Edinburgh, Scotland-based company, will help MTSU Geosciences undergraduates become more adept at geomapping and in turn enhance their career prospects. With the donation, PEDEX is granting access to the educational licenses of MoveSuite, an industry-leading software allowing current and future MTSU students to use its applications on campus. MTSU has selected L3 Harris Technologies to provide two flight training devices and a virtual flight deck to help prepare its aerospace students for professional pilot careers. The devices will feature an aircraft-specific flight deck that offers the form, fit, feel, and function of the actual aircraft. The devices are based on the CRJ-700 aircraft type, which is part of a family of regional jet airliners. The devices will introduce MTSU students to operations with regional jets before they join the airlines. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Sanjay, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Tell us what this book is all about. What sort of an approach do you take? Well, uh, the book is uh, basically, as you very neatly and clearly outlined, it is about India's state-run media. It uh, expands from uh, the beginnings of Telegraph, uh, get in to, gets into the radio, uh, a little bit into you know the way in which you know the transition from telegraph to radio to television and then uh, a little bit of internet so the book is about the colonial legacy of uh, broadcasting in india uh, the post colonial outcomes and also after that you know the particularly you know the switch from uh, television broadcast to broadband so the book is about seven chapters i would say the introduction would lay out the groundwork and if you were to ask me i would say that the book is about uh, theoretical and philosophical mediation uh, of uh, India's media, uh, particularly, you know, radio and television. Uh, and uh, five chapters would be the five analysis of uh, uh, different aspects of uh, media. So I would say that the book is all about uh, philosophical uh, reflection uh, and then the theoretical understanding of that uh, using media broadcasting. Uh, two things I do in this book, uh, which are very different and very innovative, for instance. Uh, not other scholars have done that. Nobody has pursued that line of inquiry. Uh, particularly, I look at uh, the spatio-temporal dynamics. By spatio-temporal, I mean space and time, how space and time are aligned or sort of realigned uh, in, in the development and you know genesis of broadcasting. The second would be I look at uh, five uh, concepts, five crucial ideas that underpinned uh, India, you know, particularly colonial and post-colonial India with or without the media, uh, particularly sovereignty as a key concept, which is about power and legitimacy that came through the British and before the British, you know, different uh, rulers in India. Uh, so the idea of sovereignty that is underpinning as a generative concept that underpins uh, public, the idea of public, uh, religion, nation, uh, all of those things are sort of underpinning 
the overarching theme of the book, themes of the book. So the first chapter is a philosophical uh, look at uh, idea of religion, idea of sovereignty and public and, you know, aspects, nation particularly. Uh, and I do uh, conduct my inquiry within uh, a con continental philosophy background because I have a philosophy background in addition to the media. And within that, I look at uh, the theoretical angles, uh, historical uh, aspects of spatiotemporality, and also the idea of the religious and nation and uh, public. Second chapter is more into the narrative dynamics. Uh, the third chapter is about uh, particular socio-political tensions in India in the 1980s, uh, Punjab and Kashmir issues, and I'm looking at the idea of religious and the secular as embedded imaginary. So I'm drawing from there and examining that. The third chapter is about uh, uh, the patriotism and avatars, particularly it is about how uh, national and the global play out in Indian music videos. Uh, and then the fifth chapter is about uh, television and memories. People do have uh, fond memories of their childhood and of television, growing up with television. So I, in this case, an Indian case, I look at the 1980s, uh, not as a nostalgia, as a, a sentimental, but also as a productive aspect to that. And the last chapter, the conclusion is, I think, uh, a more, I think, uh, sort of bringing these things things together, and I would argue for a philological approach to the study of media. By philology, I could unpack the meaning, you know, the textual and the linguistic meaning. You're the first person I've ever seen who used Foucault to analyze <laughs> okay. the media. Okay. McLuhan, yes, Foucault, mm -hmm. no. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned in the introduction uh, to your book a 1995 Indian Supreme Court ruling that declares the airwaves to be public property. And this has long been the basis of U.S. broadcasting, but we still have commercial broadcasting, public broadcasting, and the Federal Communications Commission regulating them both. So for those of us who are not as familiar with Indian media as you are, what makes the difference between this American concept of the airwaves belong to the people and the Indian Supreme Court's version of the airwaves belong to the people? Excellent. Uh, the idea is that, you know, uh, the the understanding of audiences in the Indian case, the broadcast audiences, uh, before the audiences, they were publics, uh, different sorts of publics, you know, publics who were, you know, like would be following the popular uh, media of the day and yeah. age, which was predating broadcasting. Yeah. A demographer uh, would call it target demographics. Da da demographics. And but also in this case, you know, you would see uh, prior to the, the, the there was a rich and a, and a vibrant uh, print culture in India. Mm -hmm. People were reading literature. People were reading uh, uh, different kinds of stories and narratives in different languages. So there was this very vibrant and a rich uh, repository of, you know, publics in the plural in India. And when the British come to India, uh, they obviously it was a rule you know, by, you know, conquest and also, you know, tr trying to cobble together a certain way in which, you know, they could legitimize their rule. So they created, in a sense, a negative public, which was predating broadcasting. But when Telegraph, with the Telegraph in the 1850s and later, you know, they began to really envisage and develop a broader understanding of the public, which would be for the legitimizing their rule and also to trying to sort of, you know, uh, govern India. The idea of governing India was a big deal for them. So the idea of the public in the Indian context is in that sense a little different because it is a colonial public. And then with the 1920s, you know, with the rise of radio and gradual, you know, uh, with the radio rural forums and other kinds of experiments that the British conducted in Indian countryside, you see that this whole idea of the negative public becoming more and more uh, prominent. In the post-colonial age, in the 1940s when India got independent, some of the ideas of the public that the British borrowed and developed uh, were transplanted. Uh, into the post-colonial ethos. As we come to the 1990s, 
particularly the Supreme Court judgment you're talking about. It is a kind of a neoliberal public. It is a public which is, you know, again, drawing from uh, multiple sources. Uh, the Supreme Court judgment, which looked at the 1920s radio, uh, mm -hmm. 1927 Radio Act of America, and uh, subsequently uh, some of the federal you know, communication, FCC, and other regulations about what constitutes a public. So they borrowed the idea. So I would say that there's a policy transfer ideas from you know the United States and uh, United Kingdom, for instance, all coming together in interesting ways to bring together the notion of the public. So the difference being that you know what we have today is a corporate public, a public which is much more driven by capitalist ethos and which is similar in the United States in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Early development in the United States, there was a sense in which there was a certain egalitarian public space. That was there with the uh, with uh, radio, which was you know for rural areas for development purposes in the U.S. Same of the same development ideas also got transplanted into India, mm -hmm. and you know they were also looking at the post-colonial uh, idea of uh, freedom and you know anti-national colonial movement. They were trying to sort of work together in bringing uh, about reform and change in the Indian countryside. Mm -hmm. So, in the context of the public, the Supreme Court public, uh, the public in the relation to broadcasting is still a negative public. And today in 1990s, after the economic liberalization in India, we have a public which is more commercial. Uh, yes, it is a commercial public. It is a public which is based on uh, sort of consuming uh, the media and also it's a middle class public. It's an mm -hmm. urban middle class upper caste public mm -hmm. as opposed to the public which is rural and which is, you know, uh, public which is, you know, coming from, you know, uh, countryside uh, mm -hmm. with other kinds of you know issues that are there. So the middle class public, which is more uh, drawn towards commercial enterprise, mm -hmm. uh, so there is that shift that has happened in the 1990s, and the development ethos has you know in a sense in the context of media, particularly have begun to really even Indian state-run television today is more uh, geared towards uh, this commercial consumer public. How have broadcasters in India balanced the religious and the secular in their programming, and whose agenda does that serve? There was always, uh, within the, with the British, you know, there was always this uh, fear of the public, the religious public, and, you know, the British, in fact, uh, people have written about it, scholars like Bernard Kahn and others, you know, written extensively about the categories that they've created, categories to rule on conquest, uh, the sovereignty, again, the name that I give, the colonial sovereignty that was there, put mm -hmm. in place, idea of power and legitimacy. So uh, the idea that, you know, the religious is a sep separate domain from the secular, was sort of earlier built into the in the British uh, imagination of the public, apart from the negative public. Mm -hmm. So subsequently in the post-colonial era, uh, although if you look at the Indian public life, the religion and secular cohabit in interesting ways, even at an empirical level, you can see that. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a sharp separation between the two, uh, which was embodied in the Indian uh, constitution also. And you see programs that were, you know, which had religious and traditional uh, uh, sort of themes and ideas were, you know, were shunned earlier, uh, much in the name for, you know, other kinds of things. But later you will find that uh, that separation is difficult to maintain. And on the one hand, it has produced uh, all sorts of, you know, uh, ideological problems and issues. But I would say that, you know, the my contention in the book is that we need to view the religious and the public as embedded imaginaries, uh, secular not as an abstract zone, 
uh, where you know you have you know nothing to do with the religious, but you know and religious vice versa. You see that people who live their daily lives, uh, everyday lives, carry on with their everyday mundane activities. They are in a way uh, not strictly either secular or religious people of faith. You know people with egalitarian views. They do exist everywhere, not just in India. So it is difficult to really make that separation. Uh, binary separation between uh, religion and secular and at the same time it is difficult to characterize religion as a false consciousness which much of marxist literature has done that mm-hmm. and not really engage with the religious so mm-hmm. i am proposing in this book that you know and others have written about it yeah. and i am proposing that we take a deeper look at the idea of the tradition and how we can recover tradition and go and engage with tradition and try to figure out an emancipatory uh, politics or ethics in there and for that to do that work mm-hmm. intellectual work and the hard practical pragmatic work you need to really con- consider both religious and the secular as embedded we'll take a break here we'll be back in just a moment this is MTSU on the record MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The MTSU Department of Art has the newest facility for visual arts in the state with approximately 50,000 square feet of space, including high-tech computers and computer-driven equipment for multimedia, graphic design, printmaking, sculpture, painting, and ceramics. We feature a visiting artist lecture program and an exhibition program that exposes students to work by national and international artists. To find out more, visit mtsunews.com. The book is India's state-run media, broadcasting power, and narrative. The author is Dr. Sanjay Astana, a professor in the Department of Journalism and Strategic Media. What is village uplift? What does that mean, and how does it re- relate to your analysis of Indian broadcasting? The 1920s, you know, the, there is the idea of the village broadcasting, rural radio forums, they were called. And they became very popular, not just in India, but also the idea was kind of a global enterprise that you will see that in British and also in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, People, missionaries and others who were, you know, the guardians of the old school, British white boys, British uh, bureaucrats and Mm -hmm. others who would come to India or who are in the UK or even in the US with different intent and different ideas. They were working out some of the early ideas about village uplift. And that was, as again, a part of a rule of a sovereignty that you will find that in Africa, the British had an empire radio mm-hmm. and the British uh, sort of for obvious uh, altruistic purposes perhaps, but it's a colonial enterprise that they began to really you know, uh, take this idea to Africa and to mm-hmm. village uplift. Uh, and there are other things like the villagers or, you know, the Africa, the uh, outposts of empire where, you know, the barbarians live, right? Subjects. Right. Yeah, so, it, it, it's that colonial way of not just the British, but the colonial way of looking down your nose at the conquered peoples as ignorant savages who weren't fit to rule themselves. In, 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 in Africa, you find that so much more because there was the Belgians and the others, you know. But in India, the British were perfected this quite well. There was I talk about in my chapter, uh, in one of the chapters, first chapter about Frank Lugard Brain. He was the idea behind, you know, the idea of village uplift, which combining some of those, you know, early uh, bureaucratic and guardians, you know, they were called the guardians of village India. 
So all that was good in village India. I, I wouldn't say that always, you know, it was like uh, uh, different forces were at work. Even the British uh, East India Company and later the uh, the the queen, uh, the crown, mm -hmm. uh, they had an idea of conquest, but there were other uh, bureaucrats and others with good intentions who were uh, trying to understand the village as a repository of uh, good feelings and good vibes and real people live there, the mm -hmm. peasants and all that. So you find that in the US and you find that in the UK and they were trying to bring that to India. And in interesting ways that you will see that the early 1930s broadcasting is called as the village uplift. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, there were some pocketbooks and other kinds of handbooks written by the bureaucrats in Punjab in India, in the in Lahore, uh, the, where, you know, they would sort of uh, develop this, what is called as Northwestern North Frontier Province, which was parts of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and now Pakistan and India, that region where, you know, they developed this uh, village uplift uh, programs, radio programs. So it's a fascinating genealogy history mm -hmm. there. Did the broadcasters secular approach, especially in the, the latter day today, com modern commercial uh, uh, aspect of the broadcast industry in, in India, did it bridge differences between different religions and castes since it's secular? Unfortunately, I, should have to, I would have to say that uh, uh, no in the Indian context. Uh, uh, there were some moments where there were, you know, interesting moments where there was a possibility it really existed. Mm -hmm. And I examined some of those uh, television uh, series. They were called television series, not soap operas, but television series in the 1980s when India Indian television began to broadcast regular programming mm -hmm. in the 1982. In television came to India quite late. Mm -hmm. because of obvious reasons that they didn't want to bring in, you know. It was in the 1980s with the Asian Games in 1982. And there were other kinds of prior developments in a very um, kind of uh, staggered developments on uh, with radio. They took even United States, you know, NASA uh, uh, gave some funding and sponsorship in the 1950s, late 50s and 60s. You know, they had mm -hmm. a satellite that they put in uh, space and they looked at rural broadcasting, uh, farmers for farmers and other kinds of things, which happened in the U.S. in the 40s and 50s is earlier, mm -hmm. I think. So there was that kind of an initiative, UNESCO initiative. So what I would say to your question is that mm -hmm. uh, really there were uh, moments in Indian broadcasting, radio, where there was a re clearly a religious intent, not so much a secular intent with the uh, information and broadcasting minister like B.V. Keskar, who would uh, transplant a certain kind of uh, upper caste Hinduism. Uh, on you know uh, television airwaves, uh, radio airwaves, uh, excuse me, and then he uh, would you know later realize his folly, and then he began to because people were listening to commercial media, mm -hmm. commercial radio from Sri Lankan broadcasting, which was a uh, airing. Uh, Hindi cinema songs and other kinds of clips and all that. So they then instituted a change in commercial. So that is where radio went commercial. Mm -hmm. But there were movements, mo moments where you know the, you could find uh, good secular uh, and religious, you know, good programs, which I would say that were you know blended the ethos of both, you know, mm -hmm. uh, secular and the uh, and the in the religious. With all the emphasis on the upper castes, can someone from the lower caste turn on? a television set and see an entertainment program in which the actors portray characters that are like them? Or is it all about the upper caste? Is, are, are the lower caste totally removed, like the way uh, American broadcasting was for uh, African Americans in the early 1950s? They mm -hmm. didn't see anything that looked like them unless they were totally servile or totally stupid. Uh, yes, in India in the 1970s. 
50s too in with the UNESCO and other uh, sponsors you know who were you know United States particularly uh, they were something called the radio rural forums that began to the colonial uh, avatars took a new turn new form and they were in the 1950s mid 50s where in uh, there were some anthropologists and others who were studying the rural development and all that so they implanted that and looked at programming and they learned their lessons in radio about radio from there and in 1970s uh, with the loaning of the satellite i was talking about a while back uh, from united states uh, nasa particularly they sent a space um, uh, orbit in orbit and then they relayed programs that was called the satellite instructional television experiment as is acronym as site which was a massive one in the 1975 mm-hmm. which uh, actually culminated which was actually around the same time in internal emergence in india 1975 to 77 so that program those programs were uh, developed in the local language and for rural people with some of the narratives and stories were you know in their language and that was in a mixed reaction to that i would largely say that it was not a uh, success but there was a smaller program development program called kheda television mm-hmm. which was in the northeastern in region of gujarat and you know north uh, western india where you will find uh, a really interesting experiment where you know in local languages you know people would look at their prog- uh, themselves and you know begin to really understand even there i would say that there's some kind of mixed signals about you know the intent or purpose of development we'll take another break here mm-hmm. we'll be right back this is mtsu on the record Specialized training in forensic science prepares tomorrow's professionals through the Forensic Institute for Research and Education, or FIRE. The Forensic Anthropology Search and Recovery Team assists law enforcement with skeletal remains at crime scenes. Legendary forensic scientists provide lectures free to the public, and high school students work realistic crime scenes each summer at our CSI MTSU camp. I'm Dr. Hugh Berryman, Director of FIRE. For more details, visit mtsunews.com. The Tennessee Civil War National Heritage Area is managed by MTSU Center for Historic Preservation. A partnership unit of the National Park Service, the Heritage Area tells the whole story of America's greatest challenge, offering assistance with Civil War and Reconstruction Era programs. Our projects include historic driving tours, museum exhibits, and nominations to the National Register of Historic Places. For all the latest MTSU news and information go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dr. Sanjay Asthana, a professor in the Department of Journalism and Strategic Media who has written a book published by Cambridge University Press titled India's State-Run Media Broadcasting Power and Narrative. What is Doodarshan and Why are some people nostalgic about what it used to be? Doordarshan in Hindi, it's a Hindi term for basically it means distant vision like television, distant vision in Hindi. Uh, from of course from Sanskrit but Hindi. It is in a way uh, people who were growing up in the 1980s uh, when television was first instituted as a regular programming with commercial uh, broadcasting with uh, commercials and television other kinds of things which just you know was the early stages and people who grew up at that time in the 80s in the indian case i found that interesting because i wanted to approach the issue not from the nostalgia as sentimental but also as a productive gain uh, and i here you know bring uh, paul ricker meaning throughout my book i engage with uh, continental theories you know paul ricker and michel foucault and you know henry lefevre and uh, post colonial theory and uh, some writings of neo marxism Uh, particularly in you know, a feminism feminist studies and media studies rickers work particularly you know memory history and forgetting is about how you know memory itself is you know traces of memory uh, can be seen as uh, Uh, productive in a way to really understand and my here in this case you know i'm not looking at memory as a objective 
criteria, but memory where, you know, always is partial. Everybody's knowledge is partial. So is this book not claiming to be objective, but it's partial knowledge? I found interesting ideas there, you know. They were sort of talking. I had informants, you know, who were, you know, I'm personally talking to them uh, in a semi-ethnography interviews. I was looking at online uh, uh, YouTube uploads. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I would look at how the Internet is used here, the, the digital uh, affordances of the digital media, particularly, you know, people creating their own blogs and writing about it, personal di- diaries, personal reflections. You know, why people remember what they remember, how they remember, and how do they envision or imagine uh, their audience being an audience today in retrospect. If you look at those early, you know, memories of television, in this case, I looked at it, and I think it is the connection with your uh, past, with your growing up Mm -hmm. as a childhood, you know, as you're growing through, you know, certain phases of your life, that you begin to really have that, uh, whether it is people have called it as wallpaper memories and other terms for that. Mm -hmm. But for me, what is interesting is that uh, the idea of the social context of memory, mm-hmm. the socio-cultural uh, relations within which you know that kind of memory is there among certain class of Indians, and mostly I have only you know exam looked at middle class Indians, middle upper caste Indians, but I had a couple one at least one from the Dalit background. So I was looking at some of those patterns and relationships there in Indian uh, situation in the 1980s when people are reflecting in 20. 15 and 2016 and 2017, they're looking back 20 years back. Mm-hmm. So they found memories of watching uh, kind of a regional programming was there on Indian media. There was mm-hmm. a yearning to really engage in a kind of a vernacular uh, cross-cultural and, you know, understand the broader ethos and sensibilities. The book is called India's State-Run Media, Broadcasting Power and Narrative. The author is Dr. Sanjay Astana. He is a professor in the Department of Journalism and Strategic media my much much appreciation for you know the opportunity to speak with you uh, i would also take this opportunity to thank uh, the fascinating library that we have here on mtsu uh, i had you know i would say more than 100 books interlibrary books over the last 8 years 7 8 years that i have uh, borrowed from and they've been very diligent and very professional and i would like also to thank the faculty research and creative activity uh, committee and the opportunity grants the fund funding that I received on at least on two occasions for this particular book. I closed the book with a quote from Edward Said about what journalism entails, a journalism with integrity, a journalism that is based on facts, a journalism that is driven by real you know, concerns and trying to bring uh, different voices together, but practiced with a certain ethics. And uh, my department, Department of Journalism and Strategic Media, is enduring and is sort of actually involved in that. And I would sort of give a shout out to having journalism as seen as something that is a a very ethical enterprise and something that we all need to really consider again. Thanks once again, Sanjay. Thank you. We'll be right back. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, WISE advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com.
Jimmy Hart has the middle moment. Leaders from MTSU and Meharry Medical College in Nashville recently gathered at the state capitol to recognize the six inaugural fellows accepted into the new Medical School Early Acceptance Program. The goal of the unique partnership is to fast-track qualified students to become primary care physicians in seven years and address a shortage of doctors in the state's rural areas. And here's student Pierce Creighton of Las Casas, Tennessee. My mother was always a, uh, a nurse and a caretaker from the day I was born. And so I, I originally wanted to be a nurse to help people, but I, I realized that to help people better, I could become a physician and help the uh, underserved population of Tennessee. And I, I'm a Tennessee man at heart, so helping Tennessee is, is, means a lot to me. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.